Hello and welcome to Down Home Fear, where we explore true crimes and strange happenings of the American South. My name is Keegan, and this is the ninth episode of DHF. Thanks for joining us. Today is going to be another Southern Specters episode, which, as you may already know, is when we discuss stories that have some sort of supernatural elements to them. But before I go any further, I need to introduce my guest host for today's show. So please welcome a good friend of mine, Ryan. Hey, thanks. Glad to be here. What made you agree to come on the show today? Um, we've been good friends for a while. I've been a listener of the podcast, and uh, I've been pretty interested in the stories that you've done, and figured, you know, I, I enjoy researching this this type of stuff as well, and, uh, you know, if I can help contribute, happy to. Yeah, man, absolutely. And it's kind of uh, interesting, because you're actually the first male guest host wow. who has been on DHF, so... Thank you. Yeah, so we're really mixing it up today. <laughs> I always try to ask a couple of questions for new guest hosts when they come on. So since today's show involves ghosts and otherworldly entities and things like that, I I wanted to ask, um, have you ever encountered any sort of supernatural phenomenon? Um, Never in my life have I ever. No, I really, I don't particularly believe in the supernatural. Okay. Um, I generally think that there's a good explanation for most things, and a couple of the, the things that I have seen, you know, they're, they could be tough to explain away, but there usually is a decent explanation, but, I mean, the, the surreal always interests me, things like, you know, what you might see in your nightmares, or, or if, if there's a, a producer for, for a, a movie or a, a TV show that can kind of get you get you that nightmarish kind of surrealist feeling and, and it, I'm really interested in that kind of stuff and kind of that deep down instinctive like what makes us feel like we're not really where we are kind of thing. That's awesome. So it sounds like you're saying you're interested in more of a psychological aspect of things. Is that accurate? Mm-hmm. That's very accurate. And that's, that's one reason I like hearing your insight on a lot of this stuff with, <laughs> with your background. Cool, man. Well, um, Let's go on to the next question I have for you, which is, uh, even if now as an adult, you don't necessarily believe in the supernatural, was there any sort of ghost story or urban legend that you heard while you were growing up that really freaked you out or stuck with you in some way, like back when you were uh, a kid? Trying to think. No, no, I, I'm, I wish I could have something more interesting for you. I, I think, so when I was five, apparently, um, I hid behind the couch as my parents watched The Exorcist. And, <laughs> and so they figured that out as I, as I started screaming during one of the, the kind of possession scenes. So, I, you know, that probably stuck with me a bit. Yeah, that's a rough movie probably, to watch as a five-year-old. Yeah, that, it probably affected me in some way. But. I remember uh, when I was about that age, I was um similar situation. I, my parents had stayed up late to watch something, and uh, I, uh, I, like, hid in the living room to see what it was. And it, it was actually, um, uh, it was, like, one of the Addams Family movies. Which is, like, not even really horror. And I, I saw this one scene, and it, it scared me so much as a kid. So I can't imagine what, like, an actual, like, intense, insane horror movie... Do you remember what the scene was? Or? Yeah, it was, um, it was like, there was a guy, and he was clearly, like, some sort of, um, 
uh, like zombie or walking dead of some sort. And he was talking about how the way he died was he um, had choked to death on a toothpick. And, and it really, uh, I, I don't know, it, it just, like, scared me so much. And uh, do you, I, I mean, just completely unrelated, do you use toothpicks today, or have you? <laughs> <laughs> no, whenever I see a toothpick <laughs> these days, I, I shriek and fall to the floor in the fetal position. <laughs> yes, definitely expect. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, so um, so you, did, you didn't have, your parents didn't, like, used to tell you, like, a, about a haunted house in the neighborhood or... Um, like any any sort of urban legend or anything that that really uh, stuck with you at that age? No, man, and it's kind of sad to say that. I mean, they that just wasn't a big part of my growing up. I mean, I watched mm-hmm. a lot of Scooby Doo. That's probably yeah. what took its place. I mean, yeah, which I, I think the oral tradition has been kind of lost on me in that sense. Like, I mean, <laughs> and people would tell stories like campfires or whatever, but. None of them were, were super well told or well thought out. <laughs> Gosh, so. Yeah, so you just had, uh, you had more of a refined taste at that age and, and you weren't going for any of that amateur shit. I, well, more refined or it was just so much easier to consume and digest Scooby-Doo than to <laughs> like, seek out a friend who was a gifted storyteller. Yeah, I hear you. Um, I, I know that uh, there were... There were a couple of stories that I heard as um, as a kid that really, um, today even, I, I still kind of think back to them. And the stories themselves don't scare me now, but I still remember that feeling that I had when I first heard them when I was, you know, like eight years old or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, the Bunny Man was one of them, actually, um, which we talked about on the first Southern Spectres episode um, a, a few weeks back. Mm-hmm. So that that was a local urban legend about a murderous uh, psychopath wearing a bunny costume that supposedly lived in in the forests of Northern Virginia. So that was one of them. And then additionally, um, the uh, it wasn't even like a specific story, but just the idea of banshees really freaked me out because um, I used to go camping as a young kid and, you know, like I hated it. I wasn't really that sort of outdoorsy kid, but I was still forced by my parents to go on these camping trips and stuff. And, uh, we would be like out in the forests, um, in, uh, in a Shenandoah, uh, park and, and things like that. And you could, I think it was, uh, <clears throat> like foxes, you know, if you ever heard like foxes cackle or cry at night, oh, it's really scary. And, and it does sound like a, a shrieking woman or like a shrieking <laughs> child. So that always really, really, uh, freaked me out. The first time I literally thought there was somebody dying in the woods and uh, yeah, I mean, somebody was asking me that like, now that's just what foxes sound like. Mm-hmm. What kind of evolution is that? Yeah, it, it's crazy. And even, uh, I, I mean, even more recently, uh, I sometimes forget that we have so many foxes in Northern Virginia. Mm-hmm. So sometimes at night during the summer, you know, you'll hear them and, and it really does sound like um, like someone being uh, stabbed or attacked or something. Yeah. It's, it's pretty creepy. I mean, I wouldn't, I mean, going along with, with the theme of this episode, I wouldn't be surprised if that led to a lot of people thinking that they might have heard somebody screaming. In yeah. The yeah, 100%. I, I think that that's um, definitely a uh, possibility. So one final thing that I had for you as a question, and this is a little bit more of an abstract one, so uh, it's okay if you don't have like a response for it right now, but I was going to ask you, like, what do you think makes a good ghost story? 
is it maybe something that has a real basis of some sort like shrieking foxes that are misinterpreted like what for you makes a compelling ghost story I don't know. It's. I think for me, it's probably a lot. Mostly in the details. Like you can take a really unscary story and make it, make it really fun to listen to, and and kind of make it really meaningful by giving it a lot of of depth and and, um, like you're, you're the prose in which you tell it, and and I think, you know, you're you're always going to be being told it by somebody or something, and you know, if it's a person having some, some inflection in their voice, some, some emotion, I think it's just a very, it's, a, it's probably very similar to what makes a, a good joke good, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the medium that you're receiving it in, and probably, so, so the way it's told, and the, the style it's told, it's told. Yeah. okay, thanks for, thanks for saying it like that. <laughs> On that note, we have three stories for you today. And I'm actually going to be starting them off, and then we'll have a story from Ryan and a third story, uh, once again, read by myself. So without any uh, further delay, let's, uh, let's get started. Sounds good. All right. Story number one is going to be The Legend of Goatman Bridge. Let me tell you about Denton, Texas. It's a city in north-central Texas, up near the Oklahoma border. It's um, a pretty large community, actually. But on the outskirts, just south of town, there's a historic trust-style bridge, officially named Old Alton Bridge but all the locals call it the Goatman Bridge. The Goatman Bridge is a narrow single lane bridge that spans above a small creek. It was built in 1884 originally to carry cattle over the creek. And it's actually been on the National Registrar of Historic Places since July 8th, 1988. So why exactly do the locals call it Goatman Bridge? Some say it's because there's a demonic satyr that lurks in the surrounding woods. So a satyr is like a half goat, half man creature, uh, originally from Greek mythology. So that's one explanation. But there is another, in my opinion, much more interesting story that goes something like this. Back in the 1930s, there was an African-American goat farmer named Oscar Washburn who was living in Denton, Texas with his family. Oscar was known for being dependable and honest. He was well-liked by most of the Denton community, and his nickname became the Goat Man as a term of endearment. 
So, you know, nice guy, hard worker, he's well-liked. Um, really nothing bad could be said about this, uh, this man. Oscar and his family lived near Old Alton Bridge in a humble little tin shack. And to help boost business, he hung a sign on the bridge that said, This way to the Goatmans. So, you know, like, people who are traveling across the bridge, they could uh, see this sign and they would know that there were, um, you know, wares to be found there. Uh, and it worked. Many new customers came to buy milk and cheese and meat from Oscar's small goat farm. But unfortunately, the local Ku Klux Klan chapter caught wind of this and they were outraged that a black man could be met with such fortune, especially during the Great Depression when even the white folk were living in rags. So the clan rounded up a posse and came out to Oscar Washburn's property one night, carrying torches and demanding that he come out and face them. And Oscar did go out and face them with a shotgun and told the redneck fuckers to get off his property and fired a warning shot right above them and scared them off. And so ostensibly... He had gotten rid of these KKK guys. But after this happened, uh, Oscar's wife pleaded with him to move the family to a different town. And Oscar told her, this is our home. I swear to God, no devil's going to drive us from it. So the weeks went on and tensions mostly subsided, save for a drop in business as the Klan apparently was threatening people uh, who, who went and bought um, goods from Oscar. But one autumn night, the frantic bleeding of goats awoke Oscar. So he was laying in bed and he, he could hear his goats uh, screaming out in the night. And he ran outside and he saw a, a man slitting the throats of his animals and he was furious and in a blind rage oscar charged towards the man and chased him across alton bridge where he suddenly found himself surrounded by clan members oh man yeah he'd been he'd been tricked he had been caught in a trap and lured away from his home and was now surrounded by this uh this posse so Oscar screamed a warning to his family, and he tried to run, but he was quickly overtaken by the mob. They pinned him down and tied a noose around his neck. And even though Oscar Washburn fought as hard as he could against him, he was simply outnumbered. The noose was tightened around his neck, and Oscar was thrown over the side of the bridge, his neck snapping like a piece of dry wood. After ensuring that Oscar was dead, the clan turned their sights on the family's house. They blocked all routes of escape and doused the wood and tin shack with kerosene as Oscar's wife pleaded with them. The clan members ignored the cries of Oscar's wife and children as they lit a match and watched the shack quickly engulf in flames. Oscar's body was left hanging beneath Alton Bridge for several days, and people even took photos of it as a sort of morbid souvenir. However, one day, the body disappeared without a trace. Even after the body disappeared, though, people said they still saw Oscar, the goat man Washburn, roaming the bridge at night. Sometimes people even saw him standing solemnly in the moonlight, gazing at the charred rubble of his family's home. 
Soon after these sightings began, members of the clan who'd been involved with Oscar's hanging and the brutal murder of his wife and children began dying under mysterious circumstances, choking on their dinners, suddenly falling violently ill, and dying stricken with cold sweats and yelling at ghosts. Two more are said to have died in a car accident while crossing over Old Alton Bridge by that time known as the Goatman Bridge. To this day, residents of Denton, Texas, say Oscar Washburn's ghost still haunts the old Goatman Bridge. Strange lights are seen floating among the branches of the trees, and others claim on some nights you can see a shadowy figure hanging by its neck beneath the old trusses of the bridge. Others still say you can hear Oscar Washburn walking along the banks of the creek and muttering, this is our home. I swear to God, no devil is going to drive us from it. That's insane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, so the bridge is still standing today, and uh, it's been closed to vehicles since 2001. And uh, despite this, you can still walk out onto the bridge and see for yourself whether or not uh, Washburn's ghost haunts the banks of the river. Wow. Um, so I think that... This is one of those stories that's actually um, quite quite common, and I, I, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that this story is mainly fictitious. Um, I'm sure it has some elements based in reality, but I went through and tried to like check the check up on the claims um, that were were made in the story. And like, for example, like there, they, even though it's said that people took photos of the body hanging there, none of those photos are um, posted anywhere online or anything like that. I know you said this, but what year did this take place? This allegedly took place in the 1930s. 1930s? Yeah, like early 1930s. Okay. I mean, most of that film from that time has probably been destroyed or just is too old to, to kind of duplicate. That's true. Like maybe they were just lost over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just to play the devil's advocate. Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, that's a that's a fair statement. One thing that I was kind of thinking to myself was, um, why do you think haunted bridges turn up so much in southern folklore? I mean, we had the Bunny Man Bridge, which uh, we spoke about on the first Southern Spectres episode. Now there, this is the Goatman Bridge, and then there's the Crybaby cry uh, Bridge archetypes. Like, why, why do you think that turns up? It's a great question. I mean, off the top of my head, and I'd, I'd be interested to hear your opinion too on that, sure. that question. I mean, one thing might, you know, from a literary perspective, it's probably metaphorical. People can write um, fiction stories about it and talk about the bridge between life and death or something. I guess just to summarize, it's it's. I think it adds layers of dimensionality to the story that that you wouldn't have gotten like a uh, a monster on a highway road. Like that's not very. Exciting. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah, it doesn't have the same sort of ring to it. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, like water is also a a theme used a lot in fiction uh, to represent like life and death. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's part of it too. Um, but yeah, it was just uh, something that kind of caught my attention. But in any case, uh, that's the story of Goatman Bridge. Uh, people say that they've even felt uh, specters like grab at them and stuff while they've been out there at night. Um, it's a popular 
um, location for like amateur ghost hunters and, and mm-hmm. things like that, even uh, today in 2016. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm it, curious too. Do you know if there's any tourist appeal there? Like, does do they do you know if people can visit the site buy merchandise? Like, is that? Yeah, I, I don't know if they have like I survived Goatman Bridge right, T-shirts right. or whatever. But I would say it's definitely a point of. Um, tourism to to an extent because anything like that that has any sort of like backstory behind it you know Mm -hmm. um is a draw for uh for people for like for me just speaking uh for myself like if i was driving through denton texas and i realized that the goatman bridge was close by i would definitely go and and take a look because why not very true very true yeah i'm a sucker for that stuff Hence the podcast. Hence the podcast. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for this story. And um, that was really interesting. How did you How did you come across that story? Uh, it was actually through the Moonlight Road, which is a site that you recommended. Um, as a matter of fact, so it was uh, on the Moonlight Road, which is a website that is a collection of um, some non-fictional and some fictional so you have to kind of like sift through and and find you know the type of story that you're looking for but Mm -hmm. um it's a collection of all sorts of southern ghost stories and hauntings and things like that so that's where this story was from for the listeners if you uh haven't checked that website out before i i would recommend giving it a shot And now we're going to have the second story read by Ryan. All right. And uh, I'm not as good of a storyteller as you, Keegan, but I'll, I'll give it a shot here. So. <laughs> okay, I'm excited. I, I did some research. This this story, people commonly call it the Greenbri- Greenbrier Ghost. Greenbrier Ghost. Mm-hmm. It's, um, from what I understand from talking to you, it's relatively well-known, but I, I figure... Um, most listeners out there would probably not have heard it, so I figured it, it's a good time to bring it up. It's it's a really interesting story. It deals with the supernatural, but also I, what I think is neat about it, as you'll see, is it deals with some of the implications of the supernatural on our actual society. So mm-hmm. it's kind of kind of one of those those gems. So the reason it's called the Greenbrier Ghost is because it takes place in Greenbrier County, West Virginia. Um, the I guess you could say the victim is Elva Zona Heaster, so we'll just call her Elva. <laughs> yeah, that is a crazy last name. Yeah, you'll, we'll get a good dose of crazy names in this story, you'll, you'll see. But, okay. So she was born in 1873, so, you know, relatively distant past, but still, I mean, you know, our, our, our relatively recent future, it's not, it's not so far in the past. So description of her, I mean, there's a picture of her in black and white, 
just give you some descriptions. She has dark complexion, dark hair and eyes. Um, except her skin is extremely pale, almost ghostly. Wow. Um, and yeah, she generally doesn't look like a very happy person, but I don't know, you know, that's just my, my opinion. So the other character in this story, his name is Edward. Um, his last name is Shu, S-H-U-E. So, you know, we'll call him Edward, we'll call him Shu. His middle name is Stribbling Trout. What? Isn't that absurd? All right. So, so yeah, his middle name, Stribbling Trout. So Edward Stribbling Trout Shoe. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> he, so he was a drifter. He came to Greenbrier County, West Virginia, in search of a new life. Um, and he was hoping to find work as a blacksmith. And so right away, so this, this dude... Kind of suspicious red flags include a middle name of Stribbling Trout. <laughs> I couldn't imagine more of a, a made-up sounding name. And Stribbling, yeah, I want to know like where, like what uh, ancestry. <laughs> yeah, like like trout, like the fish, and then Stribbling, which sounds like an adjective. Is it is it two different words? It's two words. What yeah. the fuck? Okay, that's a, this is so far the most. Uh, Isn't this this is the climax of the story? Actually, yeah, it's so. really the the crux of what I'm concerned about. <laughs> And, and so the second red flag that I can think of is he came out of nowhere seeking a new life with this made-up name. So I, I feel like if you meet somebody with a with those two red flags, you should you should keep an eye on them, um, as is the case in this story. So so Shu or Edward found work in a shop in in Greenbrier. Um, the blacksmith shop was owned by a guy named James Crookshanks. Okay. I swear these names are... Probably the least weird one so far. Yeah, but I think it's the most awesome, too. It sounds like a, a villain Crookshanks. <laughs> um, all right. So Ed and Elva, um, they they met in the village. They rapidly fall in love, and they get married, um, you know, pretty rapidly, and much to the dismay of Elva's mom, whose name is Mary Jane. So basically, they, you know, they get married, and uh, a little while later, you may see where this is going, um, Elva Heaster's body, the, the wife of that couple, was discovered by a boy who had been sent to their house on an errand by the husband, Edward Shue. So, you know, she's, she's found dead. The boy finds her lying at the foot of the stairs of the house. She's stretched out with her feet together, and she has one hand on her belly. So the boy runs to tell his mom, who brings the doctor slash coroner. His name is George, so we can just call him Dr. George. <laughs> it's a, finally a normal... Yeah, I, I, I should look up his last name. I'm pretty sure it's absurd. <laughs> it's, it's probably something completely, <laughs> completely nuts. Um, it's like yeah. Squabblestone. <laughs> George Squabblestone. We should just call him Dr. Squabblestone. I like that. Uh, let's stick with Dr. George. For, <laughs> Dr. George. So we don't confuse anybody. Okay, so we had Ed mm-hmm. Stribling Trout. Stribling. Stribling Trout. Shoe. Shoe. Mm-hmm. Um, and his wife has seemingly fallen down the stairs mm-hmm. and is now deceased. She's, she's completely gone. And so this little boy finds... The body runs to tell his mom who brings Dr. George. Okay. So they're all kind of convening at the house. Um, the doctor arrives. He gets there like an hour later than the body was discovered. Um, in between that time, the husband, Ed Shue, came home, carried... He took the corpse of his wife upstairs to the bedroom and laid her on the bed. So before anybody got a chance to look at her. Um, so a couple interesting facts. 
by the time people get there, he had already dressed the corpse himself with mm-hmm. like like almost like funeral garb. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess it's important to note that traditionally in this town, the women of the village would wash and prepare the body. It was it was just one of those traditions in this in this small town. Yeah, wait, um, I can't remember if you said this or mm-hmm. not already. What year was this on? So she was born in 1873, and she was, and I'll say it later, but let's see. She was 23 years old when this happens. So 1870, so this was in like 1896? Exactly. Okay. Yep. Just double check. Hey, this is Keegan with a quick post-production update about these dates. So Elva and Ed met in October of 1896, but Elva was murdered in January of 1897. So I just wanted to clear that up so there's no confusion. Back to the show. Uh, so, so yeah, the women usually undertake the body. He's, he's dressing, it, dressing the body for burial like an hour after she dies. So Stribbling Trout's shoe, he, he notably chooses like a really high necked dress with a really stiff collar. And he places a veil over the face of the corpse. So, that, you know, the doctor gets there, body's already fully taken care of, almost completely covered up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at this point, hard to say whether this is strange behavior or not. The dude could still be innocent, but just a little bit strange, I guess. Um, the doctor gets there, starts performing his examination, because, you know, he has to have a cause of death. Um, and so while the doctor's performing this, Edward Shue is cradling the corpse's head really closely, and he's, like, crying over it and, like, mm-hmm. really shaking. And Dr. George, you know, he's a good guy, and he notes the husband's grief and kind of ends the examination a bit early makes it nice and brief. Mm-hmm. Um, the doctor later notes, you know, he, he vaguely sees him bruising on the neck, um, but when he tries to lean a little bit closer to examine, Shue reacts extremely violently. Um, so the doctor at this point just figures, all right, I'm going to get the hell out of here. He takes his stuff and just leaves the house without question. Okay. Um, doesn't, doesn't do any more investigating, which, you know, come on, doctor. But I guess you got to be in his shoes. Um, so at the time, Elva's cause of death was sta- stated as an everlasting faint. What? I can't believe this guy was a doctor. Um, what what does you, that mean? I was going to ask you, in your opinion, what do you think that means? <laughs> Um, an everlasting faint? You mean like you die? Yeah. <laughs> Your cause of death was death? You just don't, don't come back? <laughs> just yes. like faint and you stay fainted forever. <laughs> oh, it's man. It's just one of those things. I guess if you're the doctor at that time, you don't really know what happened. It's just well, like also, like, being a doctor back then was not oh. the same as being a doctor yeah, now. It's so true. Like You could basically just say, hi, I'm a doctor. Yeah, exactly. Like, they didn't know what cancer was back then. Like, how, how do you... How do you diagnose this? I thought things? she had fallen down the stairs, though. Yeah. Wasn't well, that the thing? Like, shouldn't it have been, like, cause of death falling? So this one's going to make you even more mad. They, they kind of disputed that and were like, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. Even at that time, they were like, wait a minute. That's, mm-hmm. that's, that doesn't sound right. And so the doctor changes the cause of death to death by childbirth. <laughs> I swear, this is, this is factual. Wait, why? Was she pregnant? Nope, nobody could confirm whether she was pregnant. <laughs> Yep. Fucking West Virginia, uh, circa okay. 1896. So pretty absurd. Uh, yeah. Um, so okay, that's insane. Birth. Um. So of course, you know this. This was before the age of telephone and quick communication. Yeah. So after all this happens, cause of death is found. The parents are notified, informed of Elva's death. They have Elva's mother, Mary Jane, on file as saying, 
you know, she finds out and she immediately says, the devil has killed her upon hearing the news. I mean, you, you, you could say that, you know, maybe she's very religious and thinking that, you know, she's murdered by the devil. But, I mean, recall earlier we were talking about how she wasn't a big fan of the guy when she found out they were getting married. So mm-hmm. maybe she's referring to the husband. Okay. Who knows? Nobody, nobody clearly. It would be out. really nice if, like, people in this stupid community could be more <laughs> clear about just everything. Yeah, just, just in general, they need, like, more communication skills. I think that's, they should send you back there, man. If, <laughs> I don't know. You, you would have done some good work. I sure. <laughs> would have saved so many lives. <laughs> At least cleared things up. Declared so many everlasting faints. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Declared them as bullshit, at least. Yeah. Uh, so, so just taking a step back to think about this chronologically, um, regarding how antiquated this all seems, it's, you know, they, the couple met about 1896, just like you said, you hit it on the nail on the head. So that's a little over 110 years ago. And just, just how weird to think it is that, that society was like this. Your, your like grandparents, mom, or dad lived around the same time as these people. So it's mm-hmm. really not that long ago. The other interesting chronological perspective to think about. So Elva was 23 when this happened. Um, you know, 23 long, maybe happy years. She didn't look very happy, honestly. So <laughs> yeah, probably not. Um, <laughs> okay, we'll retract that. Okay. <laughs> Because she had the um, photo of her looking kind of, like, gloomy, yeah, right? Yeah, and I encourage you to find that picture. She just looks like a ghost already. Yeah, yeah. If, I, if I can find it, I'll uh, post it yeah. on our uh, website or um, Twitter or Facebook or something. That sounds great. <clears throat> um, so, so she's 23, and then literally she had never met this guy Edward before. In the period of about six months, they fall madly in love and get married. And in that same six months, she turns up dead. So that doesn't, doesn't like, I'm not a statistician, but there was probably something going on <laughs> there. Yeah. Um, so she's buried the next day after she's found dead in the local cemetery of the local church. Um, so depending how you look at it, at the, at the funeral, Edward Chu shows great sadness and devotion to his former wife. He never strays from the head of the open coffin, um, as it was... As it was moved around, you know, which seems fine. He's, he's a, such a gentleman. Yeah, he's a grieving husband. Um, so the body's laid out, and people start getting a little bit suspicious of Edward's behavior. Um, also, let me know if I'm going on too long. No, it's fine. So Ed's grief kind of goes from overwhelming sadness to almost like a manic, incredible energy. He, yeah. <laughs> you don't say. It's like, like... All right, so if you if you did this to your wife, come on, try not to make us. You, you'll see some of this stuff is pretty ridiculous. So, so he allows nobody to come close to the coffin, um, basically keeping them away because he's he's a grieving husband or whatever, and he's like running around keeping people like like blocking them away. And he runs and gets a pillow, and a rolled up sheet like a, a big bed sheet, and he tucks them on either side of Elva's head. And and so I don't mean like he lifts her head and like puts them gently under under her heads so she could you know rest or whatever he like crams them on other side of her head so that her head it doesn't have a freedom of movement oh my god because her neck was broken is, is that why so that's that's what people think at this point okay or at least you know people are just like kind of noticing this is a bit odd maybe he's just a weird dude mm-hmm. um and so people are questioning he's like oh i just wanted to rest easier you know be more in place i guess so okay. you know, obviously pretty suspicious um so the next thing he does is he gets a giant scarf, like ties it to 
Elba's neck, he drapes it over that entire area. <laughs> okay, so can you imagine you're just like watching this dude <laughs> place more and more shit around his wife's head and neck? Yeah, just like, just let them get on with the funeral, right? But, but people like, just like piling more and more like furniture and like articles of clothing and stuff. I remember I did the exact same thing when I was six and I accidentally broke one of my brother's toys and I just kept piling shit on top of it. (laughs) Trying to bury the evidence. Yeah. And he found it. Um, so, (laughs) and so he's telling everybody, he's like crying out like this was your favorite scarf. (laughs) Everybody's like, all right. Like, Like, sure. He's really, (laughs) you're grieving. We understand. Oh, this guy. So his efforts, you know, you might, you might anticipate this draws a lot of undue attention to her head area as people, people kind of note what he's doing. Um, and so a lot of people, after looking at the head as the coffin's being moved, they, they note that it's moving around with like a really strange looseness. It's just like <laughs> bobbing around to and fro. Yeah, just horrible. Absolutely oh horrible. Um, so Mary Jane, the mother, who was, you know, suspicious of Edward all along, I can see you laughing. Okay. I, I, I'm like trying. I'm like literally holding back laughter. This is absolutely this nuts. Is absurd. Uh, great, great story. So, so Mary Jane was convinced that Edward had murdered his wife and daughter, um, and so you might you might think that maybe she gets more suspicious with all this stuff. She might have, but she actually gets her suspicion from other reasons, and this is where some of the the supernatural comes in. So Elva's mother, um, you know, she takes one of the white sheets from the coffin that, that Edward had placed in there and tries to return it to him because she's like, why, I guess, why is this in here? Mm-hmm. He refuses it. He doesn't want it. She says, okay. Um, she, she reportedly starts noticing a really odd odor about this sheet that's just emanating really strongly. And, you know, I, I guess back then they, they reused these things. So she's like washing the sheet, trying to get this odor out. Um, Kind of weird that she kept the sheet, in my opinion, but but she's trying to... I mean, sheets are expensive, bro. Yeah, you're right. I, I shouldn't judge, judge that. Um, so while she's washing it, the, the water in, in her hands, they just become soaked in red, just blood red. Hmm. Um, and, she, you know, she starts freaking out. She just keeps scrubbing, trying to get whatever this is out of the sheet. The red kind of fades to pink, and the water finally becomes clear. She takes the sheet out, and it, it's completely pink. And the paint couldn't be washed out. Um, now the 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 gap of logic I don't completely understand, but this signals to her that her daughter had been murdered. Um, like the the red stuff, fine, but apparently the the pink sheet just signaled to her um, that something was going on. So she begins praying every night for four weeks. You know she keeps praying, hoping that her daughter will you know come back to her and tell her what happened, or that she might get some kind of sign. I'm very devoted in, in this new tradition of hers. So finally one night, you know, about four weeks later, the prayer works. According to the locals, um, Elva appeared to her mother in a dream. Uh, basically, the, the ghost of the daughter claims that Edward was a very cruel man who abused her. Um, he attacked her in fits of rage. One of them broke her neck. And the reason was because she hadn't cooked any meat for dinner that night. <laughs> and, Aww, yeah, that's fucked. It seems like one of those things you might hear in a dream from a ghost of your daughter. It just, like, doesn't really make a lot of sense, but, uh, you know, give her, give her a break, I guess. Yeah, and this, uh, this mother was also uh, biased against him in the first place. Oh, she, she never liked him. Yeah, exactly. So, of course, like, subconsciously, she would be um, mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry. Continue. No, I completely agree. That's what makes a lot of this so fascinating. And it, you kind of think like, does this count as supernatural, or is this just her like intuition? Intuition. Yeah. yeah. Like telling her something. <clears throat> I mean, because the guy wasn't very good at covering up what he did. So yeah, he, he was really bad at really it. Bad at it. Yeah. <laughs> if anything. And. And so you know, during this dream, to to prove the statement about breaking her neck, the ghost spins her head yeah, all the way around until it's facing completely backwards. Think the Exorcist. Again. Yeah. Um, and you know, the the ghost comes, comes a, a few more times over the course of four nights to the mom. It was. It's kind of unclear whether it keeps recurring in her dreams or whether it's actually in in the room. People don't seem to know. But mm-hmm. she she basically says that. It would it would appear as as a bright light in the room, gradually taking form and, and filling the room with this like really breezy, chilly air around hmm. the mom. So that would sound like she was conscious. Yeah. You know. Well, yeah. It, it goes from saying that it was in a dream to to talking about how the ghost would appear um, to her. So. Ha- have you ever heard of sleep paralysis? I actually have. It's absolutely. It sounds terrifying. Yeah. So um for. People who haven't heard of that, uh, sleep paralysis is a relatively common, <clears throat> excuse me, a relatively common disorder where basically you you go to sleep and you wake up, but you're still you're like half awake and half asleep. You're unable to move. You're perhaps conscious enough to be looking around the bedroom that you're in, um, but you you still see dreamlike visions and, and in fact it can be very very scary and very intense um one of my brothers actually uh has had a uh, trouble with that for a really long time and he, he's told me about it and it sounds very very scary you know you'll wake up you'll be paralyzed in your bed and you will see figures and shadows like moving across the room that's crazy uh, yeah it's it's like really really nuts but anyway the, the reason i bring that up is like Perhaps this is maybe something similar to uh, a sleep paralysis episode, yeah, that uh, where she she's still yeah. kind of dreaming, but it seems very real, and she is interpreting those events as having truly happened. That's some really valuable insight. That that might be exactly what's going on here, actually. That's just kind of my my suspicion, I guess. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> and I guess well, the other thing you have to keep in the back of your mind too is. If you're the mom and you think your daughter's been murdered by this guy and you you don't really have any hard evidence, like, would you be willing to make something like this up to kind of spur curiosity around it? Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, who knows? It's, it's tough to say. You know, this happens Probably, so yes. Probably, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sure. So, so spurred by her visions, the mother goes to the local prosecutor. We'll call him John the Prosecutor. Is that, um, wait, is his name actually John? His name is John. Okay. Yeah, no, his, his first name is John. Now just totally making up. <laughs> yeah, okay. Trying to cool. protect his innocence. Cool, cool. Uh, this guy. Um, <clears throat> so over five or six hours, she's just sitting there in his office, pleading to him, trying to convince him to reopen the matter of her daughter's death based on this story of hers. Um, it was also known that gossip around town was starting to spread because of her visions. Um, so it's you know, spreading by the second. In this case, was quickly kind of becoming of some renown and so you remember this guy's a lawyer so he acquiesces and he's willing to help out um, with mm-hmm. this stuff so John the prosecutor he starts interviewing several people of interest including Dr. George who had the guy who had run away from the scene earlier when he was expect- inspecting and 
Because yeah. the husband kind of scared him off. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Struble Trout or whatever. <laughs> Stribbling Trout. Stribbling right. Trout. Mm-hmm. Sh- Edward Stribbling Trout Shoe. That's right. Okay, god damn. That's crazy. <laughs> All right. Oh, man. It's def- definitely a made-up name. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, he made that one up himself. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, the doctor confirms he hadn't finished the complete examination of the body. And so this was one of the things that was viewed as enough justification for an autopsy and therefore an exhumation of the body. And so this is about a month afterwards. <sighs> and so this is actually in addition to the, the formation of an inquest jury, which is, you know, according to the laws of the United States. So this is officially now a legal matter, which is, which is interesting. Why was that now illegal? Because they had to exhume the body. It was a legal so they, matter. So they exhumed the body and then separately this kind of this this further investigation and reopening the case um the the lawyer decided to open an inquest jury which is basically like a jury of your peers and and so because of that that decision of of opening this up it it's now like under the confines of the law of the united states and and so one example of how that affects things is edward shu can't can't prevent anything from happening because now it's all in the procedure of the law. Oh, okay. So he can't be like, "That's my wife's body. Right. Stay away from her, you bastards." Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So that no, now they essentially have to have to do this autopsy. Okay. Um, right on. Which is you know makes it's like very very cool. That they Go that. justice. Yeah. Um, and and so yeah, about a month after the murder takes place, Elvis' body is dragged out from the grave. Sorry, exhumed. And so that's the that's the legal terminology. Yeah. <laughs> of course, jury drags the body out, and so they take the body and they lay it lay it down, and they go to like the one room local schoolhouse and just lay her on like a desk or something, and and just start to examine her. I know, man, it's it's a lot. Were the kids still there when they did that? <laughs> they probably took the day off. <laughs> I hope. Um, yeah, you have a snow day of sorts. Yeah, seriously. As we were just talking about, so Edward Shue vigorously complains about this whole process and, and tries stopping it, but because this process has been set legally, yeah. he's bound by law and can't do anything about it. So before the autopsy, Edward, this guy, just he's not doing himself any favors. He, he openly says... I know I'm going to be arrested, but nobody's going to be able to prove my guilt. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't don't think he has a defense attorney at this point, because he probably would have told him not to say that. Um, So three-hour autopsy takes place. The doctor finds that Elva's neck had indeed been broken in addition to a crushed windpipe and finger marks on the throat indicating that Elva had been choked to death. Wow. Yeah, the ligament, it was like really brutal. The ligaments around the neck were torn and ruptured, and it was just pretty grisly. Um, and, you know, obviously it, it had all been covered up by the early stiff dress and the scarf. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Shu was finally subsequently arrested, and he's charged with the murder of his wife. So the trial takes place. And this is, this is where it gets interesting, the practicality of, of the supernatural stuff the mother was seeing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Shu, he's held in jail awaiting trial. Um, more information come, comes to light about this guy and, you know, in the course of investigating. Um, he had been married twice before. His first marriage had ended in divorce because the wife accused him of great cruelty. Uh, Keegan, can you guess what his second marriage ended in? 
um, was it a murder for like um, life insurance shit? That, that's a good guess. Um, it, you know, it might have been. The wife dies under mysterious circumstances less than a year after they've been married. Okay. Nothing gets pinned on the guy. I guess people figured, oh, it seems like... His, his wives just keep on dying. Yeah, just, you know, whatever. Um, so he picks up and moves in search of a new life and, you know, comes here. Um, so... Also, it's, it's kind of weird in perspective to think about getting remarried three times. Remember, this isn't a society with a 50% divorce rate that we seemingly have today. Mm-hmm. This is like, you know, one person forever, the rest of your life. Um, so <laughs> Not if you keep killing them. Yeah, seriously, like, you got to take care of them. Ugh. While he's in jail, he's... He openly... Come on. He, he's talking about wishing to wed seven women in total. Um, at the same time or like no he just seems to have a track record of having married seven women why people you got people who just have have this crazy they're like why why would you possibly do that and, and you know he speaks freely about this ambition and he, he speaks freely about how he knew it wouldn't matter because he's going to be like oh because there's so little evidence against him it's a good strategy yeah good, good thinking bro yep so you know Mary Jane, the mother, was John, the prosecutor's main witness. Um, John inquires, asks the mother about the known facts of the case. He tries to kind of skirt around and avoid the issue of the ghost sightings. Because remember, this is a U.S. US court case right mm-hmm. now. And so that, that works fine. The defense attorney for Edward Shue, you know, he finally gets one. He decides to inquire extensively about Mary Jane's ghost sightings. You know, potentially maybe to discredit her oh, okay. or why this happens. All right. Turns out he misjudged the crowd a bit. The more he kind of berates her and, and digs into it, the more like steadfast she holds and she can give like extremely extremely deep details and is like really impassioned by it. So the jury's like really reading it. It's like, like, wow, this woman really has something going for her. And wow. the judge found it incredibly difficult. He he wasn't able to he he, he tries instructing the jury to dis- disregard the ghost story and all this whole thing that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, they find that many people in the community seem to believe it, like, because because of this. Yeah. So the defense attorney kind of screwed up. He misjudged his audience. So in the end, Shu is found guilty of murder and sentenced to life in prison. Um, there's a lynch mob that was formed. Um, and Naturally. Naturally. <laughs> they, they go to the prison to take Shu out and hang him. Um, but instead, you know, a sheriff comes out like old Western style and saves the day and disbands the lynch mob. So anyways, Edward goes to prison. He dies in the year 1900. Um, he's the victim of some epidemic that broke out in the jail and Mm -hmm. he was buried in an unmarked grave in West Virginia out there. So somewhere, probably in Greenbrier. Um, the mother, she holds true to the ghost story. You know, she's asked extensively about it. Um, she dies in 1916, so, and the ghost hasn't been seen or heard from since. I guess, I guess in ghost theory, you figure maybe the, the, the daughter, the ghost of the daughter got what it wanted. Or yeah, something. like her soul is at peace. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so that, that would be one reason, I guess. So it's confirmed that this is actually the only known case. Well, because remember, like, this this whole thing happens because a mother sees a ghost in a dream. It's, it's just kind of mm. mind-blowing to think about. This is the only case in which testimony from a ghost helps convict a murderer. Um, and that's, you know, at least in the United States. Um, so anyways, you, you know me. You know, I like asking you infuriating questions about this stuff. So, okay. so in your opinion, do you think that 
the testimonies of sightings, visions, apparitions, damnations, should this stuff be permissible in court in the off chance that it might might result have a result like this? Well, I guess my thing is that he wasn't... <clears throat> Ed was not convicted based off of the mother saying that the daughter's ghost told her he did it. He was convicted based off of um, the physical injuries that were discovered during the exhumation of the body. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really interesting that the impetus for that um, body being exhumed was the kind of spiritual visions that the mother was having. I think that's super, super interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, should, should people be able to be uh, sentenced to life in prison based off of someone being like, a ghost told me? No. Right. But in this case, it seems like... Uh, the the ghost sighting was just kind of one element among others mm-hmm. that led to the conviction. So I think yeah. that it, it's really interesting. It, like you were saying, it's like the only case in the United States where mm-hmm. that's happened. So it's definitely extremely unique. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that's a good point. Maybe there's there's like a barrier you have to cross where if it would result in the complete conviction, like you said, you can't use it. But I don't know. I, I just personally have a really hard time with with that being admitted at all. Just like how how do you decide if it's because I, I imagine there are a lot of a lot of crazy people making up stories and stuff. Yeah. There's no hard. I, I mean, yeah, it's tough. I guess case by case basis. Yeah. So I I guess um is what you're saying that like the because the jury was very impassioned by the testimony about the ghost sighting like that's what you're saying like that's why. It, it seems, like, weird to you? Yeah, yeah, I think I think the whole thing just leaves a, a bad taste in my mouth. Yeah, I hear you. Um, but on the other hand, like, that guy probably did totally kill her, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, like, whatever. The ghost... Like, <laughs> I don't want to call for, like, lynch mob justice, right. but, like... No, I, I mean, so, like... So here's the thing, like, the mother had a bad feeling about him from the beginning. Mm. The mother was so upset and disturbed by her uh, daughter's death and by the behavior of the husband that something stuck with her that encouraged her to tell people that the body needed to be exhumed. Mm. I think that's the important part. And the stuff about in the courtroom, uh, her bringing up the ghost sighting again... Um, that's just kind of like a interesting embellishment, Mm -hmm. um, that happened. You know what I, you know, Mm -hmm. cause he really, like, he really did like, clearly he's got two wives that he, um, presumably murdered. Mm -hmm. He's saying he wants to have seven separate wives, which I guess implies that he's planning on murdering again. So fuck that dude. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that makes sense. It's a good summary. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I I hope I um I hope I did a good job of articulating that. Uh, it's definitely a very unique case that um I I can't think of any uh, comparable parallels from yeah. from anywhere else. Oh, very interesting. I'm, I'm glad you uh, let me present that here. Yeah. Did you have anything else you wanted to add before uh, before we end this segment? No. No, that was it. All right. Cool. Well, great job, man. Thank you.
have a third and final story for today. And this is going to be something different from what we've done uh, before, because we've done ghosts, we've done murders, obviously, but we haven't done any cryptids. So this is going to be the first cryptid story we've done on DHF. Um, cryptid is a term used to describe an undiscovered or unconfirmed animal. So famous examples of cryptids would be the Loch Ness Monster, uh, Bigfoot, Chupacabras, the Mothman, etc., etc. I'm going to talk about a lesser known one, and this is going to be kind of a shorter story, but it caught my attention and I thought it would be worth bringing up since we're doing our special kind of uh, supernatural kind of off the wall uh, show today. So I'm going to tell you about the Honey Island Swamp Monster. Honey Island Swamp is a region of marshland located in southern Louisiana, uh, just a little bit north of New Orleans. It is not actually an island. It just got that name because a large colony of honeybees used to inhabit a nearby island. It covers an area that is about 20 miles long by 7 miles wide, and it contains about 70,000 acres of land, much of which is permanently protected wildlife, um, or a permanently protected wildlife refuge. So it's considered one of the most pristine and undamaged marshes in the United States. It's inhabited by alligators, raccoons, boars, snakes, um, turtles, eagles, black bears, like all, all sorts of different uh, wildlife. When you're thinking of this setting, it's important to kind of imagine quintessential bayou. So shallow, slow-moving rivers... Um, mosquitoes, murky water, Spanish hanging moss, cypress trees, uh, the whole works. In 1963, two men, Harlan Ford and Ray Mills, made their first uh, report of a sighting of a strange creature living in the wilderness in uh, Honey Island Swamp. They saw a large, hair-covered, bipedal creature that would come to be known as the Honey Island Monster. They said that it was hunched over the body of a dead boar and was covered in dingy gray hair. Uh, it appeared to have clawed hands, and as Ford and Mills tried to get a better look, the creature glared menacingly at them with glowing yellow eyes and fled into the woods. Wow. They estimated that the creature was about 400 pounds and 7 feet tall. Harlan Ford actually got a video of the monster, and it looks very similar to the infamous Patterson-Gimley Bigfoot video, so I, mean, I think everyone who's alive has seen that video at one point or another. Uh, basically, it, it just looks like a guy in a costume walking through the woods, <laughs> is, uh, is basically what it looks like. This was the first documented sighting of the monster, but the Native Americans in the region had known about the creature for years, apparently, and they had a name for it, which is uh, Letiche or Letiche. I can't tell exactly how this person is supposed to be pronounced, but it's, uh, it's one of those. I think you nailed it. 
Litichi. <laughs> um, the creature is said to be accompanied by a putrid stench as well. So that's like a recurring thing. Is like it looks super crazy and like haggard and everything, and also it smells really really bad. I couldn't find what it smells like, but I would imagine it's probably like rotting meat. Mm. There are two theories behind how the creature came to be. And one theory, uh, and you tell me what you think is the more believable of the two. I already have my theory. (laughs) What's your theory? I just saw The Revenant yesterday. So I'm thinking something like that. Some like crazy survival story where there's this guy like wearing the skin of different animals. (laughs) (laughs) That's my theory. That's that's sort of close. Um, So the first theory is that... um, In the early 1900s, a train full of circus chimpanzees crashed into the swamp, and the chimps escaped and eventually began interbreeding with the local alligators and producing these strange semi-ape, semi-reptile hybrids. Oh my god. So, it sounds like you don't... You don't agree with that one. Well, you gotta you gotta imagine how how would a monkey court an alligator like just <laughs> because that's the necessary thing that would need to happen. Yeah, or maybe the monkey just went up and like forced itself on the alligator. Do yeah, I mean maybe, but but do alligators lay eggs, right? Yeah, I'm not making that up. Yeah, I guess I guess. All right, I'll let you continue. (laughs) Okay, well, here's the second theory, so maybe you'll think this one is more believable. Uh, The second theory is that the swamp monster is actually a feral man who was lost in the swamp as a baby and was raised by alligators. That's the one. That's the one. (laughs) You think he was... How would an alligator raise a baby was my question. I don't know, man. I'm sure stranger things have happened. (laughs) Like, learned their ways. I, I would have a hard time believing that an alligator would show compassion to him. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're lizards. They don't give a fuck about exactly. anything. I, I feel like I feel like I, that that whole part is is relatively believable up until raised by alligators. <laughs> like maybe he raised himself. Yeah, so maybe he's just a feral man. Yeah, well, yeah. let's just leave it at that. Okay, possibly. Well, over um, sorry. Well, over the years. Harlan Ford went back into the swamp in search of the monster, but the only thing he was able to produce were plaster casts of supposed footprints. They were about 12 inches long with three large clawed toes. Supposedly, these were left behind by the monster. Other Louisiana locals claim to have had interactions with the Honey Island Swamp Monster, too, uh, for example, fishermen say that they have bumped against the creature while rowing through the swamp. Others say they have been terrorized at night by a deafening howl, unlike any other animal they've ever heard. Like a fox? No, like a like a much louder, like primate sort of like mm. howling. Almost like a monkey alligator. Kind like of a thing. yeah, like a monkey alligator, basically. <laughs> <laughs> um. Harlan Ford died in 1980, and since then, sightings of the monster seem to have subsided. But interest in the case remains strong among amateur cryptozoologists and thrill-seekers. Many of the locals dismiss the claims made by Ford and his compatriots and say that all the evidence was fabricated. I would venture to guess that they're probably right. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm, I'm curious, like... 
for all the all the really interested. You said zoologists and just like amateur. Well, cryptozoologists. Cryptozoologists. Which is much different than being a zoologist. <laughs> okay. That's that's fair. Maybe there's like this kind of understanding once you become like you you spend all these decades like researching this, being really interested and like looking into the stories, and then you kind of come to an age where you're like. 70, 75 years old, and you finally realize that none of it was actually true, <laughs> but but that there's a responsibility for the older older ones to kind of fabricate some stuff for the younger ones to keep impassioned, you know? Like a, like yeah, a of, kind of like passing the torch of miscredibility down. Right. Yeah, it's like, like becoming a major in some really cryptic, unstudied thing in school just to become the professor to teach that to other kids who will <laughs> have to become professors. To... Yeah, that may be. Uh, I would think that it's just like really bored, retired people mm-hmm. like living out there. And like, I mean, what else are you going to do? Like you can go fishing. You can, I don't know if they let you hunt down there, but yeah. I, I would imagine it gets pretty boring, especially back in the 70s and mm-hmm. 60s before uh, before internet. Yeah. So you would just go out and like be like, I found me some footprints. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't see why that, why that couldn't have happened. I'd be curious to see the see a picture of like the, the plastered footprints, see whether those could have been They look so fake. Oh. <laughs> I, I, I looked at them, they look so fake. Oh, it's ridiculous. Like, so? Um, just, they look like something that, like, a, a child would make to be like, look, I found a dinosaur in the backyard, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, so, anyhow, um, I, I would agree that the evidence has probably been fabricated over the years, mm-hmm. but... If you ever do get the chance, uh, I strongly recommend visiting the swamps of southern Louisiana uh, if you ever get the opportunity uh, to do so. It's uh, extremely beautiful scenery, especially during the winter. Uh, the weather is gorgeous, and it's just like very, very uh, um, beautiful, beautiful marshland. Um, Interesting. Yeah, yeah, how does the land change in the winter, out of curiosity? Oh, uh, well, just like much, much less hot. <laughs> you okay. know? It's not like 100 degrees and 99% humidity. But there's still like the like pools of water and the trees are still green and like um not all the trees are green. I mean it's like it is the winter climate, but yeah. uh, it's still like even just by itself with the the water and and the river grass and stuff. It's mm-hmm. very very cool. Cool. It's very calming. That's it uh, for the Honey Island Swamp Monster. If you are down there in southern Louisiana and you see one, please let us know. Yeah, if if you're not already letting like NBC, Fox, letting all of them know. <laughs> yeah, contact us first. Yeah. <laughs> all right. after sitting in on today's show ryan no it was uh you know a lot of interesting stories i was curious personally do you do you have any belief in the supernatural or um not really I, i've no. talked about it on here before and i think that um like you were saying all the interactions that i've had with supposedly paranormal stuff 
has had some sort of like scientific or um, rational basis of some sort, mm. there's uh, yeah, there's still a part of me that's very curious about it. Um, I, I recently stayed in a uh, supposedly very haunted hotel overnight. I was staying in a um, the I think it's called the Jerome Grand Hotel in Jerome, Arizona, and uh, it was like a it was a hospital where apparently they claim that like thousands and thousands of people died there over the years and so I like spent a night in, in this converted hospital and uh how'd it go it you know it was fine I walked around at night I took photos it's a very like it's a creepy place because but it's creepy because it's like up at the top of this mountain in an old mining town and uh, if you have the knowledge that like thousands of people died and many of them probably in the room that you're sleeping in, like that's a little creepy and weird. Mm-hmm, that is. But I didn't like see any shadow people or like I didn't feel like touched by anything. A couple of times mm-hmm. I thought I heard voices late at night, mm-hmm. but I think that like it may have just been people in the hallway or something. So. Right, absolutely. No, that's interesting. Yeah, um, but I'm not like a strong believer in the paranormal. I do. That doesn't mean I I discard it. I would love to see um, um, some sort of like proof or some sort of like video like that isn't just total bullshit mm-hmm. um, about yeah. it. But this is kind of telling that there hasn't been any ever that that's really can confirm anything. Yeah, I I think so too. At least that I know of. I think yeah, and I think also like. People will see what they want to see. Mm-hmm. You know, you still see people in 2016 talking about orbs and stuff, you know, like mm-hmm. the balls of light. I've Even though those that. have been disproven mm-hmm. for, like, years and years, it's just being, like, due to, like, dust on the lens mm-hmm. of the camera or whatever, so... I think a lot of it is, is about being in the suggestible mindset. Like, you, mm-hmm. kind of like you were saying in the hotel room, like, you're obviously, you know, a very rational guy, but the thought that there might be voices just because of the context of where you are and like thinking about the room and everything. Mm-hmm. It, it reminds me of, I went on like a ghost tour once. Oh yeah. And I mean, I apologize that this isn't the theme of the Southern United States, but it was, it was in, uh, it was in Scotland on the Royal Mile where we're basically, you know, back 500 years ago, this place was just absolute shithole. There were like, alleys where you could extend both hands and touch both sides Mm -hmm. if you weren't rich and didn't have a horse to pull you around you were sludging through like literally like manure and and pollution onto your knees just constantly yeah and so you know the poorest people couldn't afford rent so they lived in underground almost vaults without lighting without sanitation anyways so they do these vault tours and and you know I i was like interested to learn like the history and everything but what it amounted to was just this lady kind of leading us through these cold chambers that were like candlelit even though there were light switches that they could turn on and she was just like trying to like psych you out and telling like 40 percent of it was her just telling you about weird experiences people have had on this tour and like oh if you feel something be sure to let me know and oh somebody passed out right there once when they heard like, okay uh, and so everybody's like all freaked out <laughs> were you freaked out I, I was starting to, like, for the first, like, split segment of it, like, I was I was starting to think, like, oh, that's so interesting, like, yeah, like, maybe I do feel like a chill or something, but then, like, realizing that this is a tour that we all paid for as tours from other countries, and, like, <laughs> this is part of how she makes her money, like, I just got so, 
so out of it. But my, my whole point here is just that, like, the suggestibility of it and, and trying to make people feel like it's the context and that, that you might be feeling mm-hmm. something, like, who knows how our, our sensory perception works and that you might think there's something off and when you really think about it really closely. Yeah, I, I've been to... Uh, and now just, like, as you were talking about that, like, I've... Uh, I've been thinking about it and like I've been to a, a, a large number of supposedly very haunted locations uh so the most recent one was uh the Jerome Grand Hotel but I mean I've also been to like uh abandoned sites that I that are located in like the mid-Atlantic so I've been to like abandoned mental asylums and stuff and wow. like I, I've been to a, a uh, very famous uh, supposedly haunted location in Florida. I think called the Saint Augustine. Have you heard of that? It's mm-hmm. it's like an old uh, Spanish oh, fort? military fort. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Augustine, with, with, and so like we went into like the like dungeon or whatever where they kept the prisoners. And I had shit. no idea that was a part of the history. Yeah. It, yeah. It's wow. it's um. It's in like Jacksonville, I think. I don't or know. Near I, I I honestly can't remember. I was it was a really long time it's ago. It's probably in Saint Augustine. <laughs> Whatever that is. Yeah, it's probably yeah, it's probably probably there. Yeah, but so I've been to that stuff. Um, I just a couple of months ago, I, I went to these like Native American burial grounds in oh, West Virginia. That's crazy. So th- that was cool, and I mean, those locations are cool and they're creepy, but a lot of them are creepy because of the location. Right. Like if you walked there and didn't know the history, you might not. Yeah, you would just be like, oh, this is kind of like a creepy, dreary little town. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, apparently, you know, there's like 10,000 Native Americans buried throughout the hills and stuff. And wow. So, no, I, I, I'm not the biggest, um, I'm not like the biggest believer. Uh, but, again, it's like, I'm not like a complete skeptic either. But, mm-hmm. you know, so far for me, it's always been uh, more of a... Uh, more of a mindset where there's a scientific explanation for everything. Do you prefer doing the research on your own and then going there, or do you prefer when there's somebody there with you, like a guide almost? I've always, I've almost always done it with, um, with doing the research on my own mm-hmm. and going around kind of self-directed. That's probably the way to do it. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's funny, uh, when I was in, uh, when I was in Arizona staying in that town, like, I asked uh, one of the locals there about it, you know, like a guy who was like working at a museum and he, he was a much older gentleman. Um, and he, uh, you know, he's probably like in his like late seventies or early eighties. And like, I, I kind of asked him, I was like, well, you know, you seem to have lived here for a long time. Have you ever experienced any sort of supernatural phenomenon and he he, like immediately like when i asked that like his tone changed because he like he was like he was like are you really dude (laughs) (laughs) and i I was like i was like well you know like it's marketed as like a haunted town and like all Mm -hmm. this other stuff and he was like he's like son i'll tell you this like i have never personally witnessed anything here so i think it's good to meet people like that who Mm -hmm. give you kind of like the flip side of it where it's like yeah come on that's just like that's just made up yeah definitely that's really interesting i mean uh, there's a lot of money to be made i'm sure in in kind of putting some of these forward for tourists like a lot of people are interested in this stuff and there's i don't know but i I always like my level of suspicion rises the more these things are merchandised that's why earlier i asked you about the whether the bridge story was like a big tourist attraction or Mm -hmm. you know people were, were selling things about it 
Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I, I think honestly, like, some of the, the creepiest stuff I've seen has always been, like, historical locations uh, that there's just, like, some sort of stigma associated with them. And it's not, it's not a supernatural sort of creepiness. It's right. more of just, like, wow, like, here's a relic of the past exactly. that's still here. And it's, it's so real, even those even though those days are so far behind us. Um, they're actually, um, in this, in this mining town, Jerome, Mm -hmm. there was a, uh, there is a, uh, you know, there's, there's old mining shafts, like all throughout the, this mountain that the town is sitting on, but there's one of them that you can go up to and actually look down. And it's the elevator shaft of a old, um, uh, of an old ore elevator that they would use to like drag copper up out of the mountain. And it's like, mm-hmm. it's literally like over, uh, like 1,900 feet deep and it just goes yeah. straight down. That's and so I, I went up to it. There was like no one else there that day. So I just took this flashlight and I was like shining it down this mining shaft. Cause you can go right over top of it. Oh, they let you do that. Yeah. Is, is there like a cover? They, they have like a piece of glass over oh, it. Man. Yeah, so I was like shining it down and like it was just like straight down and you couldn't even see the bottom. That's unbelievable. And it's like people used to work down at the bottom of that fucking thing. Um, I hope they got paid really well. They didn't and they yeah. died and they got killed doing it. Sorry for bringing that up. No, no, it's <laughs> fine. It, it's cool. I mean, it's no, cool. Man, it it, really it's important to see those things too, but... Yeah, oh, yeah. I, I, there's scary, creepy things to see there, and it doesn't necessarily involve like whether or not you see a, a phantom of some mm-hmm. sort. I completely agree. It's, it's the real, tangible things that you know happen that are actually the most scary. Yeah, I have one more for you. Okay, <laughs> so, another question? No, another like little story. About oh, sure, sure. There. This was in in Belfast, Ireland. Um, so you know, there, there's a lot of kind of civil tension in that area, and and back. Back during the, the days of like the IRA, the, there's a prison, and I wish I could remember the name of it for the life of me, but you can you can go check it out. And the part that stuck with me the most, we have this, you know, big group of people on a tour. You're not allowed to tour yourself, or, or maybe I would have, but, you know, a bunch of little kids and stuff, which was very ill-advised by the parents. Um, <laughs> they're showing us around, like, you know, the, this prison where they used to keep people, and there were all kinds of outbreaks, you know, decommissioned prison. It, they didn't want to use it anymore. But it was a site where there were a bunch of executions, right? Mm-hmm. And so the whole time in the back of your head, you're thinking like, all right, where, like, I know what's going to come somewhere. Like, where, where did this, you know, happen? You want to know the history behind it and everything. And so the guy starts talking about these executions and he, he shows us like the, where these people would have walked and what they would have done. And he shows us their room where they were staying, right? And so there's like, you know, a window on the wall. You can see like the courtyard through it. There's you know, uh, a one-person bed with some, like, shelves under it or whatever. There's, like, a, a sink and, and a toilet. And, uh, you know, pretty pretty spacious room. They just kind of live out their days there. And so these people know that they're going to be executed. They don't know what day, and they don't know what hour. <laughs> so they're just sitting there. Um, and and the, the weirdest part for me is there's this bookshelf on the side of the room. And when the day comes, they come... They, they stand the guy up, they open the bookshelf, and there's a hanging room right behind that bookshelf. Oh, shit. Next to. They put the bag over that guy's head, they take him into the room, and it's like a... So the prison's 
uh, multi-leveled and so the hanging contraption drops like like several levels to make sure that the guy's neck breaks and it's just this oh insane God. you know not not a peep from the crowd all the kids are just like, <laughs> traumatized how's your vacation little johnny <laughs> but yeah i mean that's wow. that's for example that that's so scary that's much more meaningful yeah that's very very intense yeah wow some extra bonus stories from us yeah just some extra travel stories we, yeah. we'd like to keep it kind of loose that's right um but yeah man that, that stuff's all super super interesting um so i i'd like to thank ryan for joining me today it's always nice to bring new perspective to the show Absolutely. episode 10 will be up soon for the detailed release schedule please make sure you follow us on one of our social media presences uh, there is now a Twitter page up for Down Home Fear. You can follow us at Down Home Fear. Uh, our Facebook group is still up and it's now open to the public. Uh, I made the decision to make it a public group just after a couple of different people suggested that the closed group was like discouraging new people from joining. And um, not to mention the, the main reason I made the group closed was to reduce spamming and inappropriate content, but that doesn't appear to have been an issue so far. So, um, it's a public group and if it starts like getting out of control, we'll just go back to making it closed. So no worries. Also remember, uh, there's the Twitter, there's the Facebook, and then there's also the down home fear at gmail.com email. So if you have comments or story suggestion, you can contact me there. Uh, also remember to rate and review, or if nothing else, just tell a friend about the show. All right, so my name's Keegan. Thank you so, so, so much for joining us. We will have a new show up soon. And again, for detailed release updates, uh, just check up on us on uh, Twitter or Facebook, and I'll uh, keep you up to date there. Uh, this has been another installment of the Down Home Fear podcast. We'll be back soon. Thanks. Thanks.